Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's Washington National Tax, or WNT International Tax Practice. On this episode of the podcast, we'll be exploring some major international tax issues from the Corporate Alternative Minimum Tax, which we know and love as CAMPT, including the treatment of CFC income and distributions, CAMPT FTCs for partnership taxes, and the interaction between CAMPT, a book-based tax, with our other favorite book-based tax, Pillar 2's Globe. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Rolfus, a principal with me in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice and a longtime friend of the podcast, and Savan Kozar, a senior manager in our group. Welcome, Savan, and welcome back, Danielle. Thank you, Gary. It's always great to be on your podcast. Thanks, Gary. Excited to be here. Let's start by providing some background or a quick refresher for you, KMT enthusiasts. CAMPTI is a minimum tax imposed on the worldwide income of certain very large corporations. But instead of being imposed on taxable income like our normal corporate tax, CAMPTI is imposed on the net income or loss reported on the taxpayer's applicable financial statement, or AFS, with certain adjustments. This book income, as adjusted, is known as the taxpayer's Adjusted Financial Statement Income, or AFSI. AFSI is a critical ingredient to CAMPT. It's the base for determining whether a company is in scope of the CAMPT, i.e. an applicable corporation. In general, only corporations with an average of $1 billion of AFSI over a three-year period are applicable corporations. AFSI is also the base for determining the resulting liability for corporations that are in scope. An applicable corporation's CAMPTI liability is equal to the excess of its tentative minimum tax over regular tax liability, and its tentative minimum tax is 15% of its AFSI, less CAMPTI foreign tax credits. A word of warning, though, AFSI, while equally important for both scope and liability purposes, isn't always equal for both purposes. For instance, aggregation rules apply for scope so that the AFSI of a corporation includes all the AFSI of members of the same Section 52 control group, but not for liability. As I've noted, financial statement income is only the beginning of AFSI. That book income must be adjusted to arrive at AFSI. Two adjustments are particularly relevant to the taxation of CFC income under, the, under CAMP-D. First, Section 56 Cap A C2C requires a taxpayer with an interest in a corporation that is not consolidated with the taxpayer for tax purposes, which includes CFCs, to take into account only, quote, dividends received and other amounts that are includable in gross income under Chapter 1 with respect to such corporation. Let's call this the dividend inclusion rule, though the scope of this provision can be a quite a bit broader, as it can apply also to gain recognized with respect to stock. The second important adjustment is found in Section 56 Cap A C3, 
which provides that the AFSI of an applicable corporation that's a U.S. shareholder of one or more CFCs, quote, shall be adjusted also to take into account such taxpayers' pro rata share of items taken into account in computing all of its CFC's financial statement income or loss as adjusted under Section 56 Cap A. If the resulting number were negative, that negative adjustment may be carried forward indefinitely to reduce the adjustment in future years. Let's call this rule the CFC adjustment rule. The government has thus far issued two notices on CAMTI, neither of which touch on international tax issues, including the treatment of CFC dividends. But as should become clear very soon, there is an urgent need for guidance in this area. Danielle, let's start with you. A U.S. shareholder of a CFC is required under the statute to include both the income of its CFCs currently under the CFC adjustment rule, and then also include any dividends out of these earnings under the dividend inclusion rule when paid. Isn't this obviously double counting? Well, I think the short answer is yes, but there is some nuance here. So let's first start with how I read the statute absent regs. And I think, you know, this whole podcast needs to be caveated with the fact that, as you noted, there is a ton of regulatory authority under CAMT, and we don't yet have any real public indication from the Treasury or IRS about how they intend to use any of that reg authority. But we have to start somewhere. So I will start with how I read the statute absent regulations. As you point out, you know, we're required under the CFC adjustment rule to include currently in an applicable corporation's AFSI, the AFSI items of a CFC. So that, to me, is like a worldwide full inclusion system for CFC income. But as you note, we are also required to include the dividends and other amounts with respect to those CFCs. And here I just want to pause to say that I, I think, you know, we've talked about this and I think we both read, think the natural reading of the statute is that that is a reference to tax dividends and other tax amounts that are determined with respect to equity, like taxable gain or loss from a disposition or distributions in excess of E&P and basis. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of overlap between taxable income and financial statement income such that a rule that requires you to include currently all the financial statement income of a CFC and then include the tax dividends paid out of that income. I, I think there is duplication there, but I did want to point out that it, it there are potentially slight differences. Now, the good news, because we read it, and here's why it's important to focus on is that tax dividends. I think the most important implication of reading the statute to refer to tax dividends is that we're told in section 959A and 959D that distributions out of PTEP to a U.S. shareholder do not give rise to gross income and are not treated as dividends for purposes of Chapter 1. So the good news is I don't think I have duplication to the extent a CFC makes a distribution to a U.S. shareholder out of PTEP. Now the bad news. CFC to CFC distributions of ENP that was previously included in subpart F are guilty is still technically considered a dividend under section 959B. So I think I'm kind of stuck as I read the statute without guidance 
that CFC to CFC distributions out of PTEP potentially are giving rise to dividends and double counting. And of course, not everything is PTEP. You know, after the TCJA, there is a lot of PTEP in the system, but there is also exclusions from guilty in subpart F. For example, you know, the return on fixed assets and other QBI. There's loss offset EMP. There are categorical exclusions from guilty, like foreign oil and gas extraction income. And distributions of those amounts are not PTEP. And there is no provision under the statutory CAMTI provisions for a dividend received deduction. So I think it's pretty clear under the statute that amounts that are currently eligible for 245 cap a drds are potentially going to be preference items that can give rise to cam t liability since such items are not taxable for regular tax purposes so you've told us what the statute says is there any hope that the government could provide relief particularly with respect to cfc dividends and and dividends that are eligible for 245 cap a There is lots of hope, Gary. I am full of hope for relief. I really do not think Congress intended for there to be this double counting. In fact, there is specific regulatory authority to prevent the omission or duplication of any item. And, you know, we've talked that in a vast majority of these situations, there is potential duplication. But even more than that, there is explicit authority in the dividend inclusion rule itself for Treasury to reduce the amount of tax dividends and other amounts that are included. And I think it's important to point that out because I think there are situations where Treasury should exercise that authority that may not strictly give rise to double counting. Take the easiest example of ENP that arose prior to the CAMT effective date. So I'm talking about dividends that are paid after the CAMT effective date, after 2022 but out of ENP that accumulated before CAMT. Well, that ENP wasn't subject to the CFC adjustment rule because it accrued before CAMT applied. Arguably, that's not double counting, but I still think it's an appropriate place for the government to exercise that authority to reduce the dividends that are included under CAMT because I would argue that CAMT is structured with respect to CFC income to be a regime that taxes that income currently on a worldwide basis and that taxing dividends paid out of ENP that accrued before CAMT was effective is tantamount to applying CAMT sort of retroactively in a way that I, I don't think is consistent with the structure of the statute. So KPMG has just submitted a comment letter advocating for a CFC dividend exclusion rule. Can you describe what that rule would entail and why it might be preferable to a CAMTI PTEP approach, at least in the short term? Well, here again, I think it's important to emphasize that the default treatment under the statute is that taxpayers are required to double count, to currently include CFC income and currently include CFC to CFC dividends and dividends to the U.S. that are not out of PTEP. That could be very material, a very material distortion to where I think we will ultimately end up when Treasury exercises that authority to address double counting. So I think taxpayers need immediate guidance in order to reasonably estimate 
that pay their estimated taxes and, you know, reasonably estimate their provision for purposes of their financial statements. I don't think the government should let the perfect be the enemy of the good in getting guidance out in the short term. Moreover, the absence of guidance or further clarification could also have a behavioral impact. I, I, you know, think about a taxpayer that, you know, needs to bring money back to the U.S. or needs to redistribute cash between CFCs offshore, but they're sitting, you know, right there on the edge of being an in-scope county taxpayer. And remember, once you're in, you're in forever. <laughs> so there are kind of big stakes there. And while, you know, I may be expressing a lot of confidence on this podcast that the government will eventually exercise that regulatory authority, I don't know if a, if a chief tax officer who's sitting right there on the cusp of being in scope for CAMT would feel as confident, you know, betting that, that application of CAMT on future regulations. So I do worry that the lack of guidance addressing this duplication for an item that could be so material could have a lockout effect. It could have a lockout effect of precluding taxpayers from making distributions from their CFCs into the U.S., that are potentially eligible for Section 245 Cap A DRD. It could also have a lockout effect that prevents taxpayers from moving cash around in foreign to foreign distributions. And I, I, I think the government, you know, we saw after TCJ, the government worked hard to, to quickly get out guidance in order to make sure that taxpayers were able to freely distribute their cash, the intended effect of TCJA. And it seems like it would be a shame to reverse that effort now because of CAMT. I would also just note our comment letter talked about the fact that, you know, we think a CFC dividend exclusion approach could be the right answer for the long term. But even if the government isn't wholly convinced and thinks that long term, something more rigorous, something, you know, you could call it a CAMT PTEP approach that that didn't just exclude any dividend, that only excluded dividends that you could really trace to amounts that had been included under the CAMT regime in some way. If the government were to go down that road, it would take time. And I don't think a choice to provide interim guidance now that took a CFC dividend exclusion approach would preclude the government from making that choice in the long run. But I don't think in this situation where the fault treatment under the statute is double counting of such material amounts, that the government should make taxpayers wait for guidance, wait for that, you know, longer term solution, if that's where they think they're headed. I think it is incumbent on the government to give taxpayers some interim relief that is maybe a simpler approach while it develops a longer term, um, you know, more precise approach, if it thinks it needs to do that. I, I'm not yet convinced that a CAMT exclusion approach, maybe with some tailored exceptions, if there are abuse concerns, that the government has might not be the long-term approach. But I accept that, that making those final decisions will take time. And I just don't think taxpayers should need to wait while the government sorts that out. So let's turn to the treatment of foreign taxes paid by partnerships. As discussed earlier, a taxpayer's CAMPD liability can be reduced by reason of a CAMPD FTC because CAMPD FTC is reduced tentative minimum tax, just as regular tax is reduced by a normal FTC. CAMT provides an FTC for foreign income taxes if three conditions are satisfied. The taxpayer elects a foreign tax credit for regular tax purposes. 
the foreign taxes are treated as paid or accrued by the taxpayer, and the foreign tax is, quote, taken into account on the taxpayer's AFS. Similarly, a taxpayer is permitted an indirect KMT FTC paid or accrued by its CFCs under similar conditions, except that CFC taxes are limited to 15% of the total positive amount of the adjustment to the taxpayer's AFSI by reason of the CFC adjustment rule. Think of this as a rudimentary Section 904 limitation, but without expense allocation. And importantly, this limitation only applies to indirect taxes. It doesn't apply, for instance, to branch taxes. So foreign taxes of a foreign branch can effectively be credited against U.S. source income under the CAMT. But there's a catch. The statute doesn't explicitly tell you whether foreign taxes paid or accrued by a partnership are creditable by its partners. The statute does tell you that a partner, including a CFC partner, must take into account its, quote, distributive share of partnership AFSI. So we know partnership income is taken into account for AFSI, and so to mitigate double taxation, a partner needs to be permitted a CAMP DFTC for taxes paid or accrued by a partnership. Savon, why is this so hard, and what kind of guidance do we need to make it less hard? You know, it is hard, Gary. As you mentioned, there are three requirements for getting a CAMT FTC. And if we reframe those with partners and partnerships in mind, a corporate partner should get a foreign tax credit for CAMT if, uh, so one, the partner, or in the case of a CFC, its U.S. shareholder, elects to credit foreign taxes for regular tax purposes. Two, the taxes are paid or accrued by the partner for U.S. federal income tax purposes. And three, the taxes are taken into account on the partner's AFS. The first requirement seems pretty easy to satisfy because the election to credit foreign taxes is a partner-level election under Section 703. The second requirement that the taxes be paid or accrued by the partner is a little bit less obvious given the general tension between entity and aggregate treatment of partnerships. But Section 702 tells you to treat a partner's distributive share of certain items, including foreign tax expenses, as if they were incurred by the partner, not the partnership. So I think you can get pretty comfortable that the second requirement is generally going to be satisfied. The problem is going to be trying to figure out how partnership taxes fit into the third requirement that the taxes be taken into account on the taxpayer's AFS. This quote, taken into account language isn't a technical accounting term, so we don't really know what it means. My best guess is that the drafters thought in addition to requiring the taxes be paid or accrued for U.S. federal income tax, there should be some connection to the fact that in computing your CAMT base, the AFS is adjusted to add back any Section 901 creditable foreign taxes that were deducted for book. So this kind of makes sense based on the structure of the statute. It's just that the language is not entirely clear. Let's unpack this a bit more. It seems relatively obvious, at least to me, <laughs> that a partnership tax is taken into account on the AFS of its partner if the partner and partnership are included in the same consolidated financial statements 
That is the taxes, the partnership would be reflected in the tax expense line of the consolidated financial statements of the partner. So is this really only a question for equity method accounting and fair value accounting? Because the taxes, the partnership accounted under these methods don't directly appear on the income tax line in the consolidated financial statement. The issue certainly seems more acute for investments that may not be obviously delineated as Section 901 creditable foreign taxes on the face of the AFS. But there is still a question under the statute regarding the amount that's taken into account versus what's paid or accrued by the taxpayer. For the CAMTI FTC, the amount needs to be both taken into account on the AFS and paid or accrued for U.S. federal income tax. So does this mean it has to be the same number, both in the financials and for the taxes? And what happens if there is a foreign tax redetermination in a year? Do you look to see if there were sufficient reserves to cover the redetermination in the relation back year? You know, I mean, these really aren't purely partnership issues, but you can see how the language is difficult to parse without guidance. And this is why it's so important to focus on the correct policy outcome, which here is clearly that partners should get a CAMTI FTC for their share of partnership taxes. There just is really no discernible policy reason not to prevent the resulting double tax in this case. The structure of CAMT directs you to pull out the book deduction for foreign taxes and instead gives you a credit for those taxes with respect to the income that you're including in AFSI. Thanks, Savan. It's an area with much need for guidance and lack of clarity for sure. So switching gears, because we do like to talk about Pillar 2 on this podcast, both CAMT and Pillar 2, or the GLOBE rules, are book-based taxes, and given the thresholds, CAMTI applies for companies with greater than $1 billion of adjusted book income, and GLOBE rules apply at 700 million euro of revenue. It seems all but inevitable that companies that are in scope for CAMTI will generally be in scope for the GLOBE rules. As we've discussed on prior podcasts, GLOBE involves a calculation of a GLOBE ETR with respect to each jurisdiction in a group. And if that GLOBE ETR for the jurisdiction is less than the minimum rate, that is 15%, a top-up tax may be due with respect to that jurisdiction. The denominator of the GLOBE ETR is GLOBE income. Again, financial statement income with certain adjustments, not the same adjustments as for AFSI. And its numerator in a, is adjusted covered taxes, which generally includes all current tax expense and some deferred tax expense allocated to that jurisdiction. Any resulting top-up tax is then hoovered up through three potential methods in descending order of priority. One, a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax, or QDMTT, adopted by the source country. Two, an income inclusion rule or IIR adopted by a parent. And three, an undertax profits rule or UTPR adopted by an affiliate. Danielle, how does AMT fit into all this? Can it give rise to an adjusted covered tax and thus increase the GLOBE ETR? And if so, with respect to what jurisdiction? I think it is a covered tax. 
Although I would note that that's not all upside because I think that also means that when you use a CAMT credit in the future, you're going to reduce your covered tax. But I do think in a year where a taxpayer owes CAMT liability, they have additional covered tax in the numerator. Maybe the harder question is you asked which jurisdiction does that covered tax relate to? I think the big gating question here is, is it a tax that's allocated to domestic income? which would mean it would affect the potential application of another country's UTPR against the U.S.? Or is it a tax that relates to CFC income so that it affects whether another country can apply an IIR UTPR with respect to the CFC income? Just starting with domestic income, we should first note that a CAMT is not a QDMTT. You have observed some of the differences. I always think the, the difference in the numerator, like CAMT is focused on actual federal taxes paid in the current year, whereas the Pillar 2 rules, you know, are relying on deferred tax accounting. That's very different. The adjustments to the denominator are different. It seems like the similarity kind of stops with the fact that CAMT is, starts with book income, makes different adjustments, happens to have a 15% rate. But I don't think there's any question that it's a QDMTT. So it's not going to shield the U.S. from a UTPR. But if it is allocated to the numerator, then I think it would reduce exposure to the UTPR. And I think, you know, I'll talk about some considerations and thinking about how it might apply if it were considered to relate to CFCs. But I think on balance, taxpayers may prefer treating CAMT as a U.S. tax. First, um, yeah, there is just a basic question. CAMT is a blended, a blended regime. And unlike guilty that blends CFC taxes, CAMT is a blended regime actually blends domestic income and CFC income to compare that aggregate, you know, CAMT liability computed on that blended basis to your regular tax liability. It's blending CFC income and domestic income together, which I think has given rise to some questions about whether it can even be considered a CFC tax regime. I think absent further guidance where it is actually the fact that CFCs are considered low tax in CAMT land, as we like to say, if the CAMT credits with respect to CFC income is less than the AFC items attributable to that CFC, those CFCs, it actually seems kind of straightforward to me to say that it's the CFCs that are driving at least a portion of your CAMT liability. And that to that extent, you know, a natural reading of the model rules would be that a portion of the CAMT tax is a CFC tax that needs to be allocated. Now, we should say here that even though it is a blended regime, it is specifically excluded from the simplified allocation method that was prescribed for guilty. It's specifically excluded because that, reg that simplified regime is not available to regimes that blend domestic income and CFC income. That point in the administrative guidance felt to me like it was drafted with the specific intent of excluding CAMT from the simplified allocation approach. But regardless of whether we have a simplified allocation approach available, I don't think it would be that hard to figure out which CFCs had AFSI items that exceeded the available credits with respect to those jurisdictions. So I think you probably could trace it to the CFCs. They don't tell you precisely how, but I think taxpayers could figure it out. But I think that leads to the question of, you know, what is the preferred answer? Kind of what do we think, you know, the, the Treasury is likely to advocate for in this respect? And I would just observe that 
you know, although the base for a QDMTT, IIR, and UTPR at first are quite similar, a significant difference is that you don't push CFC taxes down for purposes of computing a QDMTT. And that means that to the extent a taxpayer determines that a piece of their CAMT liability is being driven by CFC taxes and they push it down to a jurisdiction where a QDMTT applies, those CAMT taxes are essentially wasted as a covered tax. So for that reason alone, the taxpayer might prefer to allocate those CAMT taxes to the U.S. in order to help protect the U.S., from a UATPR because we are finding the more time we spend with a lot of companies that have a lot of R&D credits, a lot of FIDI, there is a lot of exposure to the UTPR with respect to the US base. So that that might be a reason companies wanna keep the CAMT in the numerator for domestic income. Another reason is the credit. Like consider a situation where, you know, it's clear in year one that it was CFCs that drove the CAMT liability or at least a piece of the liability. So a portion of the covered tax from CAMT is pushed down to the CFCs. Now, fast forward in a future year when regular tax exceeds the, the amount computed under CAMT and you're able to take the CAMT credit. Assume that the reason regular tax exceeded the CAMT base is because actually of domestic income. You know, the tax on domestic income was way higher in that year. That created the capacity to use the CAMT credit. How should I think of that? Should I think of the use of the CAMT credit in that year as a reduction of covered taxes for domestic income? Or should I trace the credit back to the CFCs that gave rise to the CAMT tax in the first place? That, even just simplicity alone, could make taxpayers and the government and maybe the other countries around the table think that just the simpler answer is to just leave this as a domestic tax, taking into account the fact that for the vast majority of taxpayers, I hope I'm not being too rosy here, but for many taxpayers, maybe I should hedge, for many taxpayers, CAMT liability does is tantamount to prepaying a tax. And do we wanna create this volatility, you know, going back and forth and trying to trace eventual use of the credit back to the CAMT liability that gave rise to it, or is a simpler approach, just leaving it in the numerator for the domestic income, the better approach? Are there any other CAMT international issues that taxpayers should be cognizant of? How much time do you have, Gary? Uh, I think there are a number of issues, and I realize international is not driving the train on CAMT. There are a lot of other domestic issues that taxpayers should be cognizant of. But one, one I think, sleeper, CAMT issue that's out there, especially as we watch Bloomberg, you know, for shaky economic news, is what happens if we enter a recession and applicable taxpayers, you know, start racking up domestic losses. So let me just step back for a second and observe that in the CAMT system, you know, there are no foreign tax credit baskets other than the fact that CFC income is separately sequestered. And so you can only use CFC foreign tax credits to the extent of CFC income. And there's also a rule that says if your CFC is net to a loss, you're carrying that loss forward. On the domestic side, there is no such rule. So if I have a domestic loss under CAMT, that loss is before it can create a CAMT NOL. And the good news is there is a provision for a CAMT NOL that would carry forward. But before I get to that, if I have a domestic loss under CAMT, that loss is first gonna offset foreign income. That could be foreign general basket income, it could be foreign branch basket income, it could be 
foreign CFC income, and we know it's all CFC income. We're not talking about just guilty and subpart F. It's all the CFC income because CAMT is a full inclusion regime. So my domestic loss, to the extent it offsets that foreign income, I don't have an NOL going forward. And, and that's, that's especially sad for me if that foreign income would have otherwise been sheltered by credits. You know, the CAMT allows credits for general basket income, branch basket income, and CFC income. I Maybe those inclusions wouldn't have given rise to any CAMT liability because they would have been fully offset by CAMT credits. But alas, I had a domestic loss in this year, and the regime under the statute would seem to mean that domestic loss is going to offset that foreign income so that I don't end up with an NOL carry forward and I don't end up with any foreign tax credit carry forwards. There are no foreign tax credit carry forwards for general basket and branch basket income. And the CFC, I'll call it basket, even though KMT doesn't really have baskets, but for the CFCs, you only have a foreign tax credit carry forward to the extent the CFC taxes exceed 15% of the CFC income. You don't get a carry forward because your CFC income was offset by a domestic loss. So that's a bummer. But what happens in the next year? The next year when I don't have my CAMT domestic loss because that loss was absorbed against foreign income. Well, for regular tax purposes, I, I have a regime that is meant to make me whole. It's called the ODL regime, the overall domestic loss regime. And that regime says that if a domestic loss offsets foreign income, then as you earn domestic income, you recapture that income as foreign income. And under our regular tax system, I do have foreign tax credit carry forwards that can then offset that domestic income that has been recaptured as foreign income. Well, that's great for regular tax purposes because it means I might not owe very much regular tax, but that's going to create a significant exposure for CAMT because I'm not paying regular tax due to the offset against domestic income of foreign tax credit carry forwards. And I don't have foreign tax credit carry forwards in the CAMT regime, but for that limited CFC rule, which is not a bailout for this situation. And just the last thing I'll say is, this issue was also present in Pillar 2 because Pillar 2 also doesn't recognize foreign tax credit carry forwards. And in the administrative guidance that was released in February, there is the beginning of a solution. It needs more work, but the beginning of a solution to address this issue. And it really is the same issue. And they produced for you know that sort of sad situation that I've described, a kind of substitute loss carry forward that is meant to adjust for the fact that the taxpayer subject to worldwide tax doesn't have the domestic NOL that they would have had had they been in a territorial regime. So that's just one issue that I think anybody that sees losses around the corner should be thinking really hard about their exposure to CAMT liability because I think it's not, you know, may not be baked into the models now and it could really sneak up and surprise some taxpayers and really hit the ETR hard. Thank you, Danielle and Savan. I'm sure we'll be returning to the subject as soon as we receive guidance from Treasury in the coming weeks, months, or God forbid, years. As one Treasury official is wont to say, we said guidance would be released in the fall. We didn't say which fall. So we may have some time to wait for guidance. In the meantime, for those of our listeners who are unable to tune in to our Tax Watch webcast on empty through financial accounting eyes on March 22nd, but are interested in learning more about the accounting implications of CAMT, 
You can listen to the playback at the link in our show notes. As I've said before, I often listen to the KPMG Tax Watch webcasts on my walks, and you should consider doing the same. Think of it as Encanto without the music. And as always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care. Thank you.